Welcome to the 10th episode of Unframed. I'm your host, Anthea Pockroy. In today's episode, I speak to Eitan Stern from Legalese, a law firm specializing in the creative and entrepreneurial sectors. My initial interest in interviewing Eitan was sparked from a controversy that happened at the Joburg Art Fair in September 2018. So South African photographer Graham Williams accused American artist Hank Willis Thomas of using Williams' photograph in Willis's artwork without his permission. We'll discuss this incident and use it as a base to explore further issues of artist copyright and what artists should be considering when using other people's images in their own artwork. We also explore the various rights of photographers, as well as the business of arts. Eitan encourages artists to be professional by using contracts and to take the initiative to understand fully every transaction that is made. This episode is really insightful, especially for emerging artists. I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Eitan Stern. Welcome to Eitan Stern, a lawyer and founder of Legalese. Legalese? Legalese. Legalese. Like Japanese legalese. Legalese. A creative legal agency specializing in providing legal services for creative startup and tech-based businesses. Eitan, you are no stranger to the interview. You seem to be debuting on 5FM and SABC. I've seen a lot of your interviews. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> so you're an expert. I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm an expert, but um, yeah, we've got an interesting concept, I think, and people seem interested in it. Um, so we land up talking about it a lot. Talking about your work is pretty much how you get more work. So yeah, yeah cool. Like talking. So for our listeners, can you give a short introduction to Legalese and yourself, Aitan sure. Stern? So my name is Aitan Stern. I'm the director and founder of Legalese. What we do at Legalese, we are a legal practice that caters specifically for creatives, entrepreneurs, and musicians and startups. Um, and we make legal services accessible and affordable. And we've tried to kind of break the, the traditional view of lawyers and the traditional view of how lawyers are used, when they're used in your business, what they do for you. We've tried to, to kind of look at where's the value in the service and how do we provide that to people who clearly need it, but are never going to go approach a suit and tie firm and also couldn't afford the fees, even if they did. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, that wouldn't find, uh, in many cases, wouldn't find the services that useful. Um, background to me. It's an interesting question. Um, I never get asked that. <laughs> no one, no one cares about the man behind the business. <laughs> so, um, so my background is I'm a lawyer, studied law, I was at law school, but never kind of, uh, was always much more interested in the, the odd ends of the law and was never really that interested in commercial litigation and business law. And I had a couple of, so I left Varsity, had a uh, startup, which we ran uh, fantastically straight into the ground in about a year. Um, and then kind of that landed up through, I had another couple of startups and a few interests here and there, but I was basically always more interested in the startups, in the art industry, in music. Um, I was much more around those industries, but I was, you know, went to law school and suddenly found myself doing articles, stumbled into commercial law, which is like law for businesses. And it turned out, uh, the big cosmic joke that I was actually good at it and I actually really enjoyed it, which, um, you know, you suppose you can't fight against your like strong Jewish heritage. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I ended up doing commercial law, but still, you know, it was more around the art and, um, entertainment industry, but kind of doing business law and eventually had this idea to merge the two. So we started offering that legal service to, uh, to creatives and entrepreneurs. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me today. Sure. Thanks for asking me. My initial interest in inviting you to be on Unframed 
was generated by a situation that happened at the Joburg Art Fair this year in September 2018, which raised questions about copyright infringement uh, in the art industry. And the incident involved the American artist Hank Willis Thomas and South African photographer Graham Williams. And Williams um, accused Thomas of plagiarizing an iconic photo of his from 1990, just after Nelson Mandela's release. Um, the photograph depicts a group of black children toy-toying in front of an armored car with a group of white policemen glaring grimly ahead of them. Thomas's artwork uses the image by desaturating it, whitening it in parts, and putting a reflective finish on it, which uh, viewers were asked to put on these like 3D glasses to look at it. And the work is priced at 25 times what Williams ever earned for its use. There is no credit to the original photographer, nor was permission gained from Williams. Williams asserts that the image is not sufficiently changed and says that it is blatant theft, plagiarism, appropriation. So what are your thoughts on this situation? What are the legal ramifications well, for both Williams and Thomas? And can you elaborate a bit more on the terms theft, plagiarism and appropriation? Um, yeah, I followed this issue it was a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's really, it was, a, it's an interesting one. Um, I think before we get into the legal aspect of it, or like what's the legal answer, because that's relatively simple in my opinion. I thought, I, th I think maybe we can kind of discuss intellectual property in general and like the concepts here. I thought the most interesting thing about Willis Thomas's response to this is he essentially said, that it wasn't, he hadn't done anything wrong because he was creating, I believe he said he was creating art or he was utilizing, uh, these things in his art. And um, the thing which stuck out for me is he said, if you limit what we can use, then you're limiting people's freedom of expression. And he, um, so that, which to me was the most interesting part about it. So without getting to who's right or wrong, I think we can get into that in a minute. I think there's something quite interesting and highlights this interesting point because really the idea behind intellectual property when you're talking about ownership of things from the mind, intellectual property, you do come face to face with this discussion around having people own certain concepts, ideas, intellect, which is, which is, which is interesting. I mean, that's something we need to, you know, we as a society or each society needs to come up with laws and a, and a concept, a theory uh, on how we deal with the property of the mind. Because, you know, you will have this. You will have every time you try, someone tries to own a piece of intellectual property, you are saying to other people, well, you can't go near that thought or idea. The backstory, essentially, intellectual property, the reason we have, it's a medi it comes from medieval times. So that was the first recording of, an intell of intellectual property. And essentially, the idea was that, you know, the king or the kings at the time, they, they gave certain people the ability to own certain professions. So if you were the butcher of the town or the blacksmith, then you owned that craft and no one else could do it. And that was intellectual property. And the idea was it was, you know, as it developed, the idea was you were allowed to own the inventions of the mind for two reasons. So you could get recognition for your work and so you could get financial benefit from it. So the idea of, of IP is not to like own things so no one else can ever touch them. It's not so we can like land grab uh, like thoughts and ideas. It's so that if you create something and you invest your time and your resources and your knowledge and your expertise and into creating ideas and intellectual property, because ideas aren't the only type of intellectual property, but your art, your music, if you invest your time into that, then you should be allowed to get recognition for it 
and financial benefits. That's kind of the history of it. And if we look into IP today, it's still, we should still see those two things everywhere. So every time someone's mm. trying to say, look, I own this IP, we need to really look at why are you looking to get recognition? Are you looking to get financial benefits? It's not enough to just say, I came up with this thing, therefore I own it, which is why IP can never really be owned. Like I, ideas can never be owned. You can't have an idea, which you can't claim an idea. They can only be owned once you've made the physical manifestation of an idea. So once you've taken an idea, turned it into a thing. Yeah. So an example would be, you know, let's say Uber, they came up with the idea of a ride sharing economy. Today, the idea of ride-sharing economies, you know, there's, there's a number of them. So Uber was the first one, and now there's a number of, you know, Taxify and um, Didi in, in China, and there's a number of these companies. Because Uber came up with the concept, people can copy the concept. They just can't call it Uber, use the Uber system, you, you know, use the Uber IP, the stuff that they can own. So, like, the idea is not that – so you can never own ideas, but you can own um, the physical manifestation of them. Each society, we need to interact with this idea – of intellectual property and what people can and what they can't own. And the laws of each country are going to be different. Mm. And why is it important? It's important because of the, the, the question that's raised in this. If you're limiting what people can use, then you are to some extent limiting people's freedom of expression. If you say, I own, um, a certain image, then you and you say no one else can use it, then it is, it might be a justifiable limitation, but it is still a limitation. That's where we find ourselves with this example. So I think the backstory here is interesting. So what is the difference between intellectual property and copyright? Okay, cool. So just as a point, we haven't got to the answer of what I actually think about. Uh, oh, yeah, this, okay. Yeah, or, or who is right and wrong. It's quite a simple answer. I suppose um, it doesn't have to be as binary as that. Exactly. Or is it? No, nothing is. Okay. No, exactly. It's not, none of this is. Yeah. Nothing. That's but kind of the beautiful explore. thing about the law. Nothing is really, yeah, the law, nothing is really that binary. Every single court case that's been fought in the high court or the constitutional court has been two people who vehemently believed that they were right about their interpretation about the law. And then one of them is defined as right by a judge. And that mm. can then be overturned at some point. You know, yeah. apartheid was legal at some point. You know, the law is like, you know, and now that's very much not legal. And like, this is the law changing. The law, the law is never really uh, that binary. No, what is your question just from a second ago? Oh, I said, uh, what's the difference between intellectual okay. property and copyright? Good. So, what is intellectual property and copyright? So, this is quite an interesting thing. So, you've got, so intellectual property is this general idea of property of the mind. And then within that, you've got different types of intellectual property. So, just the same as you've got different types of regular property. Let's say you've got, uh, cameras, uh, phones, desks, fruit, dogs. You've also got different types of intellectual property. So, and those different types of intellectual property will have different types of intellectual property protection. So, okay. Copyright is the protection that you get for artistic and literary, literary works. So if you write a song, write a book, draw a picture, uh, paint something so largely the the listeners of this uh podcast i assume will be creating copyrightable material artistic or literary works or music the protection that you get on that type of um, intellectual property is called a copyright now in south africa the copyright is automatic uh, so if you write a book or write a song or draw a picture paint a picture you automatically own the copyright in that work which means no one else can use that without your permission 
photographs would be included in that. Mm. So that's one category. The next category would be, let's say, it would be the type of intellectual property would be uh, names and logos of companies. And with that, you could get a trademark over that. That's the protection. So the name Legalese or the name uh, Unframed or uh, Nike or Coca-Cola, these are all brand names. That's the protection that you get to make sure no one else can copy that is called a trademark. So the reason we know that we can't copy, we can't call our companies Microsoft is because Microsoft own the trademark on that. The third type would be new inventions. So recipes, uh, not cooking recipes, but let's say like um, um, uh, pharmaceutical recipes, new inventions. When you create something that was not there before, an actual thing. So when you develop a new methodology or procedure, um, if you develop a new medicine, it's already the best example. A new product, but a new product is not really good enough. So if you invent a new type, if you take a few other kind of ideas and put them together, create something new, it's not necessarily a new invention. It's the, 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 the grounds are quite, quite strict on it. But medicine is the best example. If okay. you, when you invent something new, then you can, the protection that you can get in that is what's called a patent. And so you've got copyright, that's for artistic and literary work and photographs, trademarks are for your names and logos and uh, patents and that's like very important for us to understand because if you are in the business of creating intellectual property my opinion is quite important to understand what you are creating and what the protections are around that mm. so was there an infringement of copyright in, in this, this case so in my opinion yes 100% there was if you take a photograph you were the owner of that photograph that's the South African law if I utilize someone else's photograph without their permission, well, then I'm infringing their rights to their, mm. their copyright rights or their intellectual property rights. Now, in this example, the, the, the artist went and used a photograph which he didn't own in his art. You know, he, he didn't change it to an extent that it was a new creation. You know, there's this kind of this, this rumored law that we hear of a lot around um, you know, if you change something, some people say if you have to change it more than 30% or 60%, you've heard this. Mm. Like, so that, those are like guidelines. It's not a legal guideline. That's just like a, like an industry rumor. And it kind of makes sense because what it's trying to say is if you want to take something that someone owns and you want to reuse it without, you need to change it to a certain extent that it is a new thing. And then you're not infringing the, their, their rights. But with the rationale with that is that, you know, again, recognition and financial benefits the idea of art all art all design all music all everything is copied from someone else but mm. we don't call it copied we call it inspired by motivated by that is how culture and intellectual property grows we want these ideas to grow we want people to use them look at them take inspiration and recreate something new so the 30 percent, 60 percent change yeah so we are supposed to look at things and get inspiration but we're not supposed to copy them it's yeah. not exactly a 60% change because who can measure that? But I was going to say, is, it's a very subjective for sure. um, analysis, isn't it? Everything in the law is subjective yeah. analysis. So in the law we use, you know, you'll hear this term reasonable a lot. Or in this, the, the distinction is what they have to do is you have to make, I forget the words that are in the Copyright Act, but it has to be quite, it has to be a, a distinct change. In the, it has to be noticeably different to the original. And there's always at some point a subjective like analysis. Because remember, Art and law were never supposed to be friends. Like we did not create art is something which is 
growing and, and inspired by and, and quite fluid. And law is supposed to try to find these rigid lines. So they're never supposed to work. So, so yeah, the, we're always going to run into these issues with was it a copy or was it not? And there's an analysis which has to happen. So in this example, no, the, he took a photo, he used it. It's a, it used, he infringed the copyright. In my opinion, he's put forward a fairly weak uh, ex, uh, excuse and one with not much of an understanding how intellectual property works, which for an artist who makes their living out of intellectual property, in my opinion, that's a little bit of an embarrassing excuse to equate cop- infringement of copyright with the freedom of expression. Mm. So, like, so while there are, like, yes, there's a, there's some context in that. It, it doesn't make, it shows quite a, a lack of understanding on how IP law works. And, I personally think that if you use someone else's work in your work, you either need to get permission or pay that person their, their, their price for it. I mean, many artists use photographs or advertising as source material for their artwork. Mm. Oftentimes, the original image is translated into paint um, or tapestries, like I'm thinking of Pierre Lariche or sequined works by Francis Goodman. But it's still, obviously, you can see the source of the, the image, um, but it's it's... The medium has changed in essence. What should artists consider in terms of translating works from found photographs or advertising? And how close to the original is too close? I mean, you've just spoken about the 30 or 60%, but in the examples I've just given, uh, what would you so advise I, on that? I intrinsically believe, or I think that everyone knows when they're copying someone else's work. I, I really do think that that deep down inside, you know, when you're doing something naughty that you shouldn't be doing. Um, <laughs> but we want to ignore it because we want to either, you know, like either people will ignore it because subject, like they're, they're blind to their own, you know, their people don't want to see what they don't want to see. And also other times people want to ignore it because they believe that's the piece of art. It is the, the statement which they're trying to make is by taking an existing image and, you know, on ex- a known image and doing their own interpretation of that. You know, so what should people be aware of in that? Number one, you need to be, definitely know, like, you are allowed, and this is kind of back to the example, you are allowed to utilize things if you make, a, if it's newsworthy, essentially. So I realize one of the things that's happening here is we're trying to summarize big concepts into yeah, small sentences. Yeah. So there, so don't take any of this as direct legal advice. Your Everyone's example of what they're going to be doing is uh, we would need to look at that individually. Yeah. But these are kind of broad s- statements and hard works. Um, essentially you are allowed to like take people's images if you're like, if you are making, if you use them for news or if you're making a statement about it. So there is a distinction to some extent about using a copyrighted image in a, an artistic piece of work, an artistic piece of work, meaning it's going to hang in the national gallery as opposed to taking that same image and using it on a t-shirt, which you're going to sell at Woolworths or pick and pay mm-hmm. in there's a difference in it in the, the kind of context that surrounds that so although they probably make more money by selling it to the national gallery than they will selling 100 t-shirts so is ne- that relevant in neither of those so i'm not in neither of those the law is that you can't copy people's work but what i'm just trying to say is that when you when you are trying to consider wh- whether to make this decision to copy or to utilize references one of the things to consider is what are you using it for? And generally, as a rule, if you are using it for like a commercial campaign or to make direct like money from, then people are going to take a bigger issue with it. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider 
is, you know, what is your intention? Is your intention to take inspiration or is your intention to copy the actual image? And, you know, this is something that happens a lot with music because electronic music today is largely sampled. So there's a big difference between taking an entire bass line out of a song and using it in your song. Like the, you're, you'll remember the uh, the Rom Thick and Pharrell track where they took the, uh, I won't try to sing it, <laughs> they took the, the Marvin Gaye, um, I believe it was Marvin oh, Gaye. Oh, I think I do know what you're talking about. They took the opening lines and there was a court case that went over this and they said, no, we've changed it, we've put it in a different key and a different octave and, and the judge found, no, you haven't, it's remarkably the same. So, wow. um, you know, that's very different to taking just, say, one note or taking a you know, a sound out of a song and using that. So you got to look at, you know, are you trying to like take someone, go back to the, what we said at the beginning, are you trying, are you taking something without giving someone else recognition? Mm. And are you taking something which are utilizing someone's hard work for your own financial benefit? So if you're just using one note from it, because that note sounds right, but no one's going to lose anything from that. That's very different to taking a whole baseline out of yeah. a song. Yeah. Thomas actually uses the word sampling and remixing. That that's his assertion is that he is sampling or remixing these images. Yes. Um, so he he's just he, again he's he's not correct and if you actually look at the law around it. So there's a, there's a misguidedness on how copyright law works. Mm, mm-hmm. Because remixing you know like if you are remix, well, art doesn't really. <laughs> the question he took. I've seen the works. He took an image and put it into his work. I, I personally don't think that it's changed enough to make that into a new work. How about using other artists' work in your work? So rather than like a photograph or a piece of advertising, like a commercial image. So something that becomes quite an um quite a typical style for an artist. So like for example. There are many young artists that are producing these kind of charcoal drawings with erasures similar to Kentridge or um, creating smoke drawings like Diane Victor. Besides being derivative of them or being inspired by them, are there, are there any kind of legal implications there? Okay, so let's go back to the exact same thing. You know, so copying someone's image is always going to be an infringement of a copyright. But you cannot own a style of art. So Kentridge can't own his uh, a certain style. So if you are copying his work, in which you've taken his work and made a copy of it, which isn't changed enough to be a new work, then you're infringing his copyright. If you haven't done that, and you've just used utilized his style, then you're allowed to do that. Because Kentridge would have utilized someone else's style, and yeah. that person would have utilized someone else's style. And that is how that is how art progresses. So Thomas constantly in his practice calls into question imagery uh, from advertising and he, he talks about the ownership of images. So yeah, he said, he says what he's doing is sampling or remixing, but it, but then he also questions William's own rights to his work because he asks, does the photographer always get permission from the subjects they photograph? Why can I not use an image of people at a public event at a moment that changed history? Who can claim ownership of the people in the image? So what are the rights of the subjects being yeah. photographed? Okay, so, I mean, look, so his point that he's mentioning is interesting. And, I mean, he's doing what I believe is the job of an artist is he's bringing these conversations to the forefront. So, you know, his questions are not, like, he is incorrect, legally speaking, but the law doesn't always have to be right. And... Our, like I said at the beginning, our views towards IP change over time. 
you know, and what he thinks is he has a different view to how IP should work, that no one should own, be able to own images. And some people will believe that. Uh, you know, and IP, the, the concepts of IP and the, our, our attitude towards the change of fortune. So if you think about 10 years ago when the iPhone came out and then Samsung were releasing the Galaxy and there were the iPhone, the mobile wars, the iPhone, the, the, the mobile wars in which these companies were creating IP and then trying to stop each other from using it. Today, the context of IP doesn't work like that anymore. People create patents all the time, and these devices are moving so fast that the companies are no longer concerned with fighting each other over it anymore. They're not suing each other over the use of IP just mm. because of how quickly it's moving. Our like view towards tech at the moment is it moves so fast that it's not always worth asserting your rights and because of that the nature like we are we, tech is able to grow really fast because of that so another one would be the open source movement it used to be that people created code and we kept that code to ourselves now it just about not just about everything but a lot of the movement in code is open source people yeah. create something and they put that out there to the world to use and that is what's making tech move so fast so the views on intellectual property that that this artist as has and that's you know the photographer or the photographer's family have are just different views of how IP should work. So that's as a kind of intro to that. To answer the question, how does it work with subjects? Well, you know, this artist, the photographer, doesn't own that his moment in history. He, what he does is he owns the photograph, what he took of that moment of history. And why should he own it? Because he put in work to be there. So he invested his time and efforts to be there, and therefore he needs to get uh, recognition and financial benefit for it. That mm. is, you know, if we didn't allow people to have recognition and financial benefit, then no one would put in efforts to build things. What about the peop yeah. people in the photograph? Well, that's where the law gets a little bit kind of complex, and that kind of differs country to country. So it is not illegal to – it's not unlawful is a better word it's not unlawful to take photos of people but you know so so you are allowed to take photos of people but where it becomes unlawful is in the act of publishing it so if you publish a photo of someone so no one owns in south african context at least their, their image their, their right to their own image but be, we have rights to privacy so if you take a photo of me and then publish it, you may be infringing my right to privacy. Now, different people have different expectations of privacy, or the same person will have a different expectation of privacy depending on where they are. If you are at a football game and you're sitting in the crowd, your expectation of privacy is very low. Mm. So if someone takes a picture of you at a football game in the crowd and puts that in an advert, your expectation of privacy was very low. If they haven't utilized your specific persona or done anything which causes any harm to you, if you're a face in a crowd, well, then nothing has gone wrong. Very different to if someone takes, if you're in the shower and someone takes a picture of you because your expectation of privacy in the shower is a lot higher. So it really depends on the context in which the photo is taken. So, so at a historic event, at a, at an incident, you know, someone's expectation of privacy, they're in a public setting, not that they knew they were in a moment in history at the time, but they were in a public setting. Their expectation of privacy was lower, but totally, I agree with the artist. If you're taking pictures of people, you should get their permission before you, they pub you publish them. So I'm not sure where the first publication of this photo was. If it was in probably a, a newspaper, it was probably a newspaper. You're allowed to publish po photos in the newspaper because it's it's for it's newsworthy. It's in the public interest. Which so newspaper is very different to billboard advert. So mm. it's, it's, that's not as much in the public interest. Has the photographer done anything wrong by taking pictures of them? No. 
also the laws probably differed a hell of a lot back then. Did he infringe their rights to privacy and publishing it? I doubt it. And but yes, should you get people's permission before you take pictures of them? Yes, a hundred percent. And we, I think we need as phones are around everywhere. I really think we need to instill a culture where you don't take pictures of people without their permission. And you certainly don't publish pictures of people without their permission. And I think this is going to be an, an issue which is going to become more and more relevant as, you know, more and more devices get f- cameras, as drone technology increases and surveillance. Yeah, we're gonna, this is a real issue. I also recently saw an article from Between 10 and 5 that was written, I imagine, in consultation with legalese. Um, about, it was called, How Not to Get Sued for Your Photography. So I'll include the full article in the show notes for people to look at. You wrote, well, not maybe not you, maybe it was one of your colleagues no, wrote. Me. Was it you? Yeah. Okay. So you wrote um, that in general, the person who takes the photo owns the copyright. However, there are exceptions. If the photo is commissioned, i.e. if someone pays you to take the photo, if you take the photo as part of a job you are getting paid for, i.e. your employment, and if you're not the person responsible for the composition of the photo, but merely the person who took the photo. So as a commercial photographer myself, I'm always being commissioned to take photos. Like that's my job. Is it correct that I have no right to the copyright of the photo is it not even a joint copyright is it i don't own it at all okay so so the article it's so we put this article together to answer these exact questions for photographers around uh, i think the article is called the cape town photographer's guide to not getting sued and we put it in as like a little infographic and the idea was to answer these quick i didn't see the infographic oh there's an yeah there's an infographic up there okay cool um, so if you're listening, definitely go check out the article because it's, uh, it's short, concise content about how this stuff works. So how does it work? So the Copyright Act says if you are the author of a uh, literary or artistic work or photograph, then you own the copyright in that. The exceptions are, as you say, when you're being commissioned, like so someone's paying you to do it, or when you're being employed to do it. So, you know, anything that you come up with as part of your job, if you're being hired as a photographer to go and, you know, take photos for a living or to come up with ideas or designs, you know, it would be kind of an absurd situation that anything that you created while being paid to do it, that you own the copyright in. So if it's part of your job to do it, then the copyright is assigned over to your employer. And that's the same thing if you're being commissioned to do the work. So if someone is paying you to take photographs, then they will own the copyright in those photographs in full. You'll have in no, full. in full, you'll have no claim to those. If you are someone out there that and listening and you are someone that commissions other people to create these works, designs, photographs, etc., to make 100% certain that you own it, it's always worth putting together an assignment of copyrights. So even if you're, say, getting a website made, you would want to get an assignment of copyright which, which says that the copyright, the, the author of the work, actually not only just by law assigns it over, but actually in contract as well mm. assigns the rights over to you. Is this specific to South Africa? Because um, I've been commissioned by a few overseas agencies and they actually, they put together contracts and they actually buy the future rights for yeah. the image as well. So it differs in country to country. I know America works it differently. So does, so does the UK. Each country works, has different laws around it. But in South Africa, that, that's the way it works. And remember, all these things can be differed by contract. So if you're in the business of creating intellectual property, such as a photographer or an artist, and selling it, or licensing it, then it's very crucial that you understand what you are doing in that. Are you license? Are you selling the works? Are you licensing it? Are you licensing it for one use, for ten uses, in perpetuity, etc.? It's crucial that if you make your money 
out of creating and selling IP that you understand exactly what the laws are and what you're doing around it. And then a very smart thing to do would be to get a contract drawn up for your work so that anytime you're entering into a deal with someone, whether it's to a commission to do a piece or a license of your work or whatever it is, that you have agreed to the terms by which they're allowed to use your work. And if you do that, then they, they, you really shouldn't have any issues. Mm. Uh, the issues that most, you know, photographers or artists would have come up with a bunch of times in their career. If you kind of do that and you put together contracts and what each deal that you're doing, you are, gov- uh, are governed by an agreement, then you really shouldn't have issues. Mm. Is putting a, a condition in a quotation and then the quotation being accepted enough of a contract? Yes. I mean, look at any contract. Even verbal contracts are binding. The problem with them is that they're hard to to prove. And so, you know, really the idea behind contracting is really one of how do you make sure that both parties understand what they're agreeing to. So in some instances, some people try to screw each other over and they like do harmful things to each other in business. For the most part, people don't do what they're supposed to just because they very often don't know what they're supposed to do. So if you say, look, I want to own the copyright of my work, and you put that into a line at the bottom of your your quote, which is looked at when you're busy negotiating, please expect it to get breached and expect no one to know what's going on. If it's something very important to you, like you want to own the copyrights in your work, then have it more predominant. Yeah. Get a separate set of terms that that you attach with your quote. Say this is the terms for which I work, or have put as a specific term in the in the you know big bold highlighted thing that you get the other person person to agree to. Mm. Then you know you, you're likely to to have both parties understand that and know it. If a photograph is commissioned, then the copyright is owned by the commissioner. Yeah, how does it differ for artwork? Because you know a lot of artists get commissioned to do paintings or. Some other examples are what if you're producing work while you're in an institution, you know, you're doing your master's or your undergrad, you're producing something with funding from an organization like the National Arts Council, you're being commissioned by a big corporate or even an individual client or a gallery is paying your stipend to produce the work how does it differ in terms of creating an artwork so legally it, uh, i need to double check the copyright act and how it deals with photographs is different to, to artistic works but you know for my recollection of this it, it doesn't differ it would be the same so if you're being commissioned to do something that they were own the, uh, you commissioned to create copyright then you would they whoever commissioned you would own the copyright but not all of those instances are necessarily commissions yeah, they're not necessarily commissions in the same sense of like someone paying you to kind of photograph an event or something. Um, there is an, there's some aspect of art and photographs that are different. So the, the answer is that you always, in each one of those examples you gave, you're going to have gray areas. Mm. So it is important that in any, whenever you are being paid money to do some work or you're doing it as part of an institution, that you understand the terms for which the work is created because every one of those institutions is going or scholarships or, um, residencies are going to have different terms around that. Yeah. And if you don't, if you're going to an artist residency or you're part of university or creating content and you don't know what the terms of that institution are, then you are either operating in a place that you don't know what the rules are or you're operating in a gray area and then you should expect something to go wrong. So it is important that you understand that. So if you are going and taking a residency or being paid, you know, like a a grant to produce work, you want to know who is going to own this work afterwards. Am I allowed to continue the series outside of the, of this program? Am I allowed to sell the art? Do you, are you allowed to sell the art? 
am I going to get credited for the art? Or are you going like, you need to, to understand the, the, the rules of, of how it works. And there's then, yeah, there's a lot of big issues that have been, uh, dealt with around that space. Sorry, I keep taking this back to the tech industry, but it's, in my opinion, the tech industry is such an interesting place where we're looking at intellectual property rights at work at the moment. But this has been a very, very real example around, you know, university campuses in America where you've got people that part of university projects are coming up with literally billion dollar ideas. Mm. And then there's the question, who owns it? What about, does the university have any say, stake in it? Does the people, the other people working on the project have any stake in it? So, so what's, what are some of the outcomes of that? Every, well, the outcome has been that each one of the universities has put in place a policy, a very strict policy about what happens to students who create intellectual property in mm. dorm rooms or part of projects. Every policy, every school has their own policies in it. Now, the art world is absolutely no different. They should be interacting with us and you should know. Why is it different? Well, it's different because artists don't love that part of the job. It's not why you become an artist because you love reading the terms and the fine print. But that's a hard answer. Unfortunately, it's 2018. There's a lot of artists out there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of commercial interest in the art world. And if you want to be an artist that builds a career and has a sustainable career, then you either need to have someone take care of all that stuff for you and hopefully make sure that that person isn't ripping you off. Or you need to get a basic understanding of how these things work and make sure that each job that you're doing, each time someone's giving you money to produce art, that you know why they are giving you money. Because some people out there in the world might just be very kind and give you money for no reason, but I would say more likely is that they've got some interest in it and you need to understand what their interest is and do your interests align. Because yeah. if you don't make sure of that, then you can, we've seen plenty of tears on our couch from people that have, uh, that have, you know, six months or a year down the line. Over. It's not screwed over. That's the thing. What is artists it? don't off, it's not uh, the artists getting screwed over. Mm. And this is something which I, I promise you, I'm very artist friendly and I'm, uh, we represent artists, but it is just two people in an arrangement that they didn't agree on the terms. It could be, you know, we see plenty of artists trying to screw over the people that have given their money. Yeah. They would have taken money to do work and then don't want to hand over the work. That's the artist screwing someone over. The reality of all I'm trying to say is that people's commercial interests don't always align. So if someone's giving you money or you're creating art as part of an institution, then understand the rules by which you're doing it. And if you don't like the rules, don't create the art. Yeah. I think that's so important. I really think I've barely thought about these kind of conditions and I'm pretty sure a lot of my peers aren't either. So I think that's a really interesting piece of advice. It's an issue that we ex discover in like the modern world where art and artists have become so valuable. You know, it, there's, there's more and more, we see more, there's more money and more success in the art industry because we've got such easy ins into it because of social media and because art, like brands want to align themselves with artists and there's a lot of money running through the industry, which is fantastic. Galleries popping up, art's becoming valuable. It's a great thing to invest in means there's lots of money but it means and there's lots of opportunity but it means that you need to understand both the business and the art side if you want to make a career from it if mm. you don't you want to do it as a side hobby then do it as a side hobby yeah so artists and and obviously many freelancers are often so grateful to the client or to the gallery uh for 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 the work or for being represented that they they're sometimes too scared to rock the boat by demanding you know, I want a contract for yes. this interaction or um, demanding their payment. What advice can you give to artists for ensuring that they get paid properly, uh, that their interactions are legally sound? Okay, so 
The first thing I can say is that artists are not special. They are no different. Every single other person in the world is also grateful when someone gives them work. Myself as a lawyer, I am joyful and grateful every single time someone gives us an instruction. And if it's a bigger instruction and we stand to make more money out of it, I'm even more excited and more lenient and towards with the terms. And we go through the exact same Mm. conversation that an artist goes through. What's my first bit of advice? Artists should probably stop seeing themselves as so weak and defensive and the poor artists. The best artists around there don't see themselves as that. Just as the best lawyers around there don't see themselves as that or the best creative agencies or the best doctors. In my opinion, if you see yourself as the underdog in a situation, well, then you're the underdog in a situation. So my first invitation is to just for artists to understand that they are in a business and their business happens to be creating art. They're not, it's not different to any other industry. And I don't mean, I hope that doesn't come across as aggressive to artists. It's, it's incredibly no, supportive advice. of yeah. artists. Like you have a product that you're selling. Um, but so that's my first bit of advice. Second bit of advice is the same thing, which I'd give to anyone else in a business, whether they're a creative agency, a designer, a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. You need to discuss the terms of the deal with your, with your client. What are your payment dates? What happens if they cancel? What happens if you don't? When are you going to deliver by? What happens if you don't deliver on that date? Think through these things and come to an arrangement with them with your clients. And then the next bit of advice would be just to write that down. You know, a great thing to do would be to have a contract drawn up. We've had great success with artists and photographers in drawing up kind of standard terms and conditions for them, which they give to their clients. Um, but it's not, but it's something you could do yourself. Put that as the lines at the end of a quote. These are my payment dates. This is my cancellation policy. This is what happened. This is when I'm going to, this is what you're going to get. And when this is the light, what you're allowed to do with it. You're not allowed to resell it. You are allowed to resell it. You, whatever it is, like whatever's important, structure, the commission structure, whatever it is that's important to you in that deal, you need to put that down. And then you get to that very important part that you, that you raised uh, in your question of what do you, you know, we feel scared that if we decide, ask for these terms, we're not going to get the work. Welcome to the party. That's that we all feel scared of that. There's always an underdog in, in a situation. You know, if you're doing business, if you are a food manufacturer and you're doing business with one of the big retailers, they pay on a 90 day turnaround. Yeah. Three months you can wait for your money. Why do people still do business with them? Because that's the conditions where if you want to deal with a major retailer and make lots of money for your business, that's the conditions. When we are smaller businesses, we're all underdogs. So I personally, my personal belief in this is that people like to deal with more professional people. So I don't think it's the sending terms or an official quote or asking for certain payment dates that is going to lose you the job. I would personally think it's it's the other thing and not insisting on that. You know, and so you don't have to insist on these things in an aggressive manner or insist on unfair terms. But letting people know the rules by how they engage with you is a crucial in business. Me personally, as someone who deals with content creators a fair bit, I personally prefer it when they have an exact method of how they work, what the payment dates are, what happens if I want to cancel, when I can expect the work. The art is not enough in 2018 for 99% of artists you got to have that extra factor of being able to run the business. Now, that's not an absolute rule. There are some artists in the world, you know, William Kentridge can do whatever he wants in the same way that if you are, you know, Beyonce, you can govern whatever terms you want if you're going to play a concert. 
these things, you know, that is a bargaining power. If you don't want to listen to Beyonce's or William Kentridge's terms, they will find another promoter who will or another client who will. Uh, If we're building our businesses, we have to figure out how it works with client interaction, what our clients want, and we have to, uh, you know, be able to do the deal side of uh, deal side of it as well. So I, I think you might have seen I posted on my social media to see whether artists had questions. I think actually two of them we've already answered when submitting artworks to a gallery. How vital is it to have a contract made? I think you've just answered that. It's pretty vital. Look, the one interesting thing about the art industry is it works like no other economy on earth. That there's some parts of it which really are unique. And there's, is sort of a traditional culture where galleries, um, have very loose arrangements with their, with their artists. And that's yes, the kind yeah. of trend that you're fighting against. But if you're an artist and you're sought after, then, um, you know, it's definitely worth insisting on a contract. And if you're not, then you want to be able to just sign a contract, then the most important thing to look out for get with a gallery is the exclusivity and the termination. How do you make sure that, um, that you can get out of the agreement if it's not working for you? And what are your exclusivity obligations? Can you sign your work to other galleries, etc.? And if you're not getting from your gallery, um, enough work, then that merits the exclusivity then that's a definite factor you need to consider when uh, contracting with them. Yeah, important. Another question, if, if you hand draw a photorealistic copy of a photo, what are all the artist's legal obligations to the photographer? Infringement of copyright of the photographer's work. Um, what you would need to do is ask for the photographer for permission to, for, to license their photograph so you can do your remix. Sure. Okay, that's hectic. It's what if it's what if it's a historical document? Or? Historical documents are, are copy copyright. There there is a limitation on copyright after a certain amount of time it enters the public domain. Um, What's the? I think long? think it is. I think 50. it differs. I think fifty or sixty years, but I think it differs. I don't want to be quoted exactly on that. Okay. You can, um, it differs per different for different types of works. Yeah, historic photos are owned by certain people. You know, Nelson Mandela's image, that's owned. That is a piece of intellectual property that's owned and operated and managed by the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund because it is so valuable that, and it's so open to exploitation. You know, even the iconic drawing of, of Nelson Mandela's face, that is a, that's copyrighted, that's owned. Mm. And we can't just use that anywhere we want. You know, we understand that with Nelson Mandela because it is such a, a, a live and a full example. But uh, it will be the same thing for a lot of other historic... I mean, this is a personality, but for historic photos. What if you can't find the source? Not not the source's problem if you can't find it, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, yeah. we have that as well. I tried to find the source, I couldn't. And I sent six emails and no one responded, so I just used the, art, the image. And now there's a lawyer's letter with a cease and desist. Cease and assist. What's cease that? and desist is a type of lawyer's letter which says you, you, which someone would send you if you infringe their okay. copyright. Okay. This one's maybe a bit bigger. Can Aitan explain whether we should be worried about the revisions to the copyright legislation in South Africa? And if so, what should we do? Uh, petitions, objections, lobbying via Vansa, etc. Apparently some very worrying changes have already gone through Parliament's portfolio committee which erode copyright ownership for artists. Yeah, they, I mean, I read those amendments a while ago. I didn't see anything that was very worrying in there. My advice to you would be to read it. If there is something specific that you are worried about, then definitely uh, take part in the public comment process, get in touch with Vansa or any of the other organizations that are putting together comments. But if you going on hearsay or something which, which is, you know, essentially I heard something was wrong with it, we call that fake news. And I've read so there's the, nothing worrying. I've read the amendments. Your... 
in your opinion? Well, what's worrying? Yeah, I mean, is there stuff that's worrying? For sure. Like, I don't think we're quite up to international standards. I think that this is a revision on an act which is many decades old. There's lots of things to worry about in terms of copyright law. But, like, I, I personally think that an amendment or, like, a revision of the act and some focus on how copyright works in South Africa is, is a very, very good thing. Um, but yeah, be specific about what it is that you, that, that you think is incorrect. I know you're involved in the legal help desk advancer. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. And how people can get in touch or sure. what you can offer them? So Vance, they got in touch with us. It's been about two or a year and a half now. They, uh, they have people that sign up on a subscription basis and part of their subscription uh, value add that they get is they get access to the legal help desk, which is they send us legal questions and we, uh, uh, you know, can we chat to them or send them an answer? It's been quite a valuable thing. I mean, I uh, hope it's been valuable for the people that have partaken in it. And for us, we get to interact with artists and answer legal questions. It's often kind of strategizing of what to do. Uh, I think it's fantastic that an organization like Vance exists and that acts for, for that industry as a whole. So I would suggest joining Vance. And if there's anything that you would need from us, you can just get in touch with us. You know, our prices are aimed at for the art industry and for the mm. creative industries. So the whole service is built to be one for artists. It's not the sort of service we'll, we'll say, well, I'm an artist, so I can't afford, I shouldn't be going to a lawyer. We've tried to build that service for artists. Yeah. Cool. I'll put your contact details in the show notes. Cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I think that, I mean, yeah, my overall point as like a summary point I think like it's twofold. Number one, if you're an artist and you work with intellectual property, you should get into a, an idea of the laws and how it works. Um, and there's, you know, that's why we've tried to put content out there, which tries to educate people on it. Uh, there's a lot on our website or on our blog. Otherwise there's plenty online. That's number one. And number two is if you're an artist, consider your business just like any other business in the world. We all have to hustle for work. We all have to hustle to get paid. And we must, and we all have to, you know, make sure that we're taking the business part of our work just as seriously as the, as the content parts that we're doing. Thanks, Satan. Sure. Cool. Thanks for joining me today. Only a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode today. In the show notes, I will put some contact details for Legalese and Eitan, as well as the article that was referred to about not being sued as a photographer. And also a link to Vance's website and maybe consider being becoming a member so that you can make use of Legalese's services through Vance. Don't forget to subscribe to Unframed on iTunes and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook to be kept up to date with the latest episodes. See you next time. Bye. Bye.